0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at burrow.com/acast. That's 15% off at burrow.com/acast. The
0: Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead.
2: Me, Richard Lee.
0: And
3: me, Shan Kane. This week,
0: Alison Flood talks drugs, Mexico, and Donald Trump with the legendary American crime writer, Don Winslow. And later, we discuss books as tools of protest. Don Winslow is a best selling author who's written over 20 novels. He's the recipient of the LA Times Book Prize and the Ian Fleming Silver Dagger, amongst many others. His most recent novel, The Border, is the latest in the Cartel Trilogy, a series that covers murder, betrayal, drugs, and family ties. The final part of the trilogy has Trump and the state of modern America in its sights, no less. Alison went off to find out more and started by asking Don to read a passage from the novel.
4: Guatemala City, September 2015. For all of his ten years, Nico Ramirez has known nothing but El Basarero. The garbage dump is his world. He's a wajero, one of the thousands who scrape out a scant living scavenging garbage in the city dump. Nico is very good at what he does. A small scrawny kid dressed in torn jeans, holy sneakers, and his one treasure, a Barcelona football shirt with the name of his hero, Lionel Messi, number 10 on the back. He is a master at eluding the guards at the big green gates into the dump. Kids aren't supposed to go in, although Nico is one of the thousands who do, and he doesn't have one of the precious ID cards that would gain him entrance as an employee, so he has to pick his spots. That's where being small helps, and now, clutching a black plastic bag in his right hand, he ducks down behind an adult woman and waits for the guard to turn his head. When the guard does, Nico dashes in. The dump occupies 40 acres in a deep ravine and Nico looks up to see the parade of yellow city dump trucks wind its way down the switchback, delivering over 500 tons of garbage every day. Each truck has numbers and letters painted on the side and Nico, although he can barely read or write, knows the meanings of these numbers and letters as well as he knows the alleys and warrens of the shanty town he lives in just outside the dump. The code refers to the neighborhood from which the truck collects, and Nico has his eye peeled for the trucks that come from the rich parts of the city, because that's where the best trash comes from. Rich people throw away a lot of food. Nico is hungry. He's always hungry. He throws away nothing.
5: Don, had you thought that you were done with the story of Art Keller at the end of the cartel?
4: Absolutely. I thought I was done with with Art Keller at the end of the first book, The Power of the Dog. In fact, I promised everybody I wasn't going to write a second book, never mind a third. What happened? Uh, at the end of dog, as I call it, you know, I said, I'm done with this world is too too harsh, too tough. I couldn't go back to it. I, my wife asked me, you know, to, to walk away from this. Uh, and then I started feeling guilty because I felt I was on the sidelines during the most violent period during which, you know, 200,000 people were murdered in drug related violence in Mexico. And, and I thought I could explain it to a reader, albeit. In a fictional way. After that book, the cartel, I said that's it. You know, done, done, done. But then I realized that uh, I'd made two really bad mistakes. Uh, one is that I've I've said to everybody in a very public way that the so-called Mexican drug problem is not the Mexican drug problem; it's the American drug problem, to a lesser extent, the European drug problem. But at looking at the first two books, I realized that I'd set seventy-five percent of the books. In Mexico. I needed to bring the drug war home Mm -hmm. where it belongs and that required a third book and the second mistake that at the end of the book I had thought I had resolved Keller's conflict and I had in terms of the external conflict Keller v. Barrera but I hadn't resolved his internal conflict Keller versus Keller in terms of the things that he had done over the, the 40 years of the war on drugs. And then I also, I, to be really honest with you, hadn't resolved my own conflicts about it. What I thought about this, what I felt about it, what I thought about my own 22 years on this story.
5: Was there something in particular that made you, one particular point that you thought, oh God, I'm going to have to go back to this story. I'm not done.
4: Yeah, the heroin epidemic. Uh... What we experience in the United States, I mean, for instance, last year, for the first time, we had more deaths from opioid overdoses than from either automobile accidents or even gun violence. Uh, And I'm watching it and living through it. You know, um, sadly, several of the people who were sources for this book and others died during that era, uh, still in touch with their families, you know. And so, again, I thought, you know, headlines have a way of becoming labels. How do you mean? Well, we talk about the opioid crisis or the heroin epidemic. That becomes a label, but we don't really see the individuals behind it. We talk about illegal immigrants, a phrase I use in in single quotes because I don't really agree with it, and we lose a sense of the human being's behind that. And I think what novelists can do, because we have the freedom to do it, is to bring the reader into the hearts and souls and minds and and living experiences and try to see the world through those people's point of view. So it's it's one thing to talk about a heroin addict, you get an idea of what that is, but then to try to see the world through, in this case, her point of view. Jackie. Jackie yeah, is a different experience, isn't it?
5: You dedicate the book to the, many, to the memory of many people. Are, are these people that you were using as sources for the book?
4: No. Um, in this case, uh, in the case of the border, there are 43 names that the book is dedicated to. Those were students who were slaughtered on a bus in Mexico by the police and a drug cartel.
5: This is something that you touch on in the book?
4: Yes, yes, it's a, unfortunately a true story. You know, um, almost all of the incidents in all three of these books actually happened in one form or another.
5: Mm-hmm. When, when you realized that you were going to go back to the, to the world of the cartel, were you kind of horrified that you were gonna to have to dive into this again or once you knew that you were gonna be writing the book?
4: I took a real deep breath uh there was a big part of me that just did not want to go back uh cartel uh, without dramatizing this you know the the real heroes in terms of writers are mexican journalists who were killed so they're the real heroes i'm not you know i didn't suffer certainly you know not to that extent but yeah i i thought about it and again you know i i promised my my wife that I wasn't going to do another one, that I wasn't going to go back into that world, either in the sense of research or writing. But, but I also knew that it was incomplete, you know, that I, I hadn't finished the story. Mm. And I needed to finish the story. Uh, so, yeah, I went back to it.
5: And what was your research like for, for this book?
4: You know, it's funny. When I started to write the first book, Dog, I knew nothing about the drug trade. didn't interest me at all.
5: Why, why did you start then?
4: Uh, there was a massacre of 19 innocent men, women, and children in a village not far from me. I live along the border in, mm-hmm. in California, not allowed to say the town anymore. Uh, and. Uh, I, I couldn't get my head wrapped around how that could happen. Now, mind you, by the time I, I came around to writing the cartel, 19 dead was, wouldn't even have made the papers, you know. It was a low body count on any given day. But at that point in time, it was shocking. Uh, and so I started to research it, and one day I started typing.
5: How was it different for the border then, which is much more set
4: in well, the U.S.? Twenty years down the line, mm. uh, I knew a lot more. I didn't have to make so many connections. They were already there. I had a a fairly, this is immodest, but a fairly deep background, understanding of of the issues and the players and what it meant, and I could easily talk to people. So it was quite different. But it was also, I think, different in the sense, I mean, particularly in the case of, of, of addicts, you know, that I spent a lot more time with them and with their families. Addiction wasn't really a topic in the first two books. Oddly enough, the drugs themselves were not much of a topic in the Mm. first two books. In this one, they were and are. And so it was a matter of spending time with addicts on the street and treatment centers with treatment professionals and all of that kind of thing. And those stories don't usually end well. Mm. They don't usually end happily.
5: What what does it do to you when you're digging into these lives and this much violence and, and this much tragedy?
4: Well, I, I wouldn't come here to lie to you, you know. Um, it has its effect. I think um, <clears throat> those stories don't ever really leave you, you know. Um, again, without wanting to be melodramatic about it. You know, you you do think about it. Uh, it. Uh, I've said this before. You know, I think I've left the war on drugs, but I don't think the war on drugs is ever going to leave me.
5: When once you've talked to these people and and met these people, how do you then write about it realistically without crossing a line into being exploitative about these stories? I,
4: I always worry about that. You know. Uh, but I think that, that my job is to, to let the reader see a world that he or she could not otherwise see, or maybe help them to see it differently. And to do that, I, I have to be intimate, and I have to be perhaps exploitative. Mm-hmm. I only hope that the result is is better than the crime. That there's some good that comes out of that, but I do worry about that. Uh, that that you are exploiting people uh, and their stories, but yet you want to tell that story.
5: And if you don't tell their stories, then what are their stories? Are they stories that don't deserve to be told at all?
4: Well, exactly. And and you know, I've I've had um, surviving family members approach me and thank me for telling those stories.
5: How about um? Cops who've read it, do they feel that you get it right?
4: (laughs) They do. They do, you know, because I think I have, to tell you, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, I've spent a lifetime with cops. I've worked with cops. I've worked against cops. You know, when I was an investigator, I've worked homicides on both sides of that street. Uh, So I I think I do get it right. Now, look, you're, you're always generalizing and generalizations are always dangerous. So there are some cops that might read my stuff in these books, and it has nothing to do with their experience. They wouldn't recognize it, and that's quite fairly so. Uh, And other cops who live different kinds of lives or work different kinds of jobs recognize it immediately. You know, uh, Joseph Wambaugh, the great seminal, I think, cop writer told Michael Connolly, who told me, that he wasn't so interested as to what cops do to crime, he was interested in what crime does to cops. And I've always taken that uh, as kind of my way of working. I'm always more interested in what crime does to criminals and what crime does to cops And I'm interested in in vice versa.
5: Yeah, you have your cop who goes undercover in in this and and what it does to him, two years of of spending time being a baddie, how how that affects him once he tries to come out of it.
4: Yeah, you know, as an investigator, I did a, a number of undercovers. And there, there's always this sort of moral, psychological jeopardy because if you're going to do your job well, you automatically relate after a period of time more closely to the people you're pursuing than the people that you work for. Otherwise you couldn't do that job, you get caught. And so there, there's always that danger. And I also think that cops who work the drug beat, you know, eventually most of them come to the feeling that they're in this revolving door. Uh, And and street cops, you know, beat cops, uniformed cops, they're the the men and women who who see the drug problem up close every day. They're the ones who go to the overdoses. They're the ones who go to the hospitals and the morgues. They're the ones who have to go to the families, you know, to say your son's not coming home, your daughter's not coming home. And it, it really does have its effect.
5: Your, your cast that you're working with is so huge, from the new generation of the narcos to the addicts who are falling prey to the heroin and the fentanyl. Did you always intend that your story would be so big that it would stretch so far, right up into the highest tendrils of government? No.
4: <laughs> no. <laughs> it was totally unintentional, you know. Uh, but look, I mean, I think that you have to tell the story that's there. And what I realized... Early on in this trilogy was that uh, in order to understand the detail, the heroin addict, you had to understand a thousand years of Latin American history. You you can't explain 2017 without explaining 1917 and 100 BC. You really can't. That that, that these tentacles stretch deep and wide. So in. In trying to explain the current insane era that we live in, you realize that it works in the other direction, too, that you can't explain, as we discussed maybe a bit earlier, the general without seeing the specific...
5: When did it become obvious to you or was it immediately obvious to you that you'd have to tackle Donald Trump? I wanted to say for those who might not have read it yet, the border starts in 2012 and it has a potential presidential candidate named John Dennison who has a catchphrase of you're fired from his reality television show who tweets wildly and who might just be tied into the immense money laundering operation
4: which is going on. Well, look, I mean, I started writing this book during the Obama administration uh, and then events caught up with me you know now i write about our times so it would be foolish really of me and I, and I think maybe cowardly of me to pretend that there's some sort of fictional president out of west wing or something you know, deal with what we have in front of us. That's what we have in front of us. Uh, so, as I was writing the book, I I realized that I needed to deal with that and needed to account for that. Just as you know, I had, I had already made Art Keller head of DEA. Now I have an Art Keller head of DEA who has to deal with a man who thinks he's going to solve these problems by building a big wall. Uh, and so. You, you, you you know, play the cards that you're dealt, right?
5: You've taken out uh, full page ads in American papers, uh, calling out Trump and Sessions on uh, the causes of, of drugs and crime. Um, and you're vocally critical of Trump on Twitter as well. You even challenged him to a debate on the merits of the, the border wall, which I'm not sure he's responded
4: to. <laughs> uh, he hasn't, just in the interest of clarification.
5: Do you think these criticisms have any effect? Why Why do you go to these efforts?
4: We talked about exploitation a little earlier. I think that um, when I write fiction about real problems and real people, there is a danger of exploiting them. And so in a sense, I owe them something. Uh, Every couple of years, I have a book come out, and I have a very small window to repay some of that, and to try to do what I can on the real issues. And I know that window is is narrow and it's brief. Uh, and so I do. I have I had no illusions that, that that the current occupant of the White House was was going to respond to me, but somebody has to come out and say, "Look, you're lying." When when you say when you go to to the parents of uh, of kids who died from an overdose and tell them that you are going to solve this problem by building a wall, when you know full well that that is not going to affect it, when you tell that sort of cruel and sadistic lie to suffering people then it is up to people like me who have that small window and who have a certain amount of expertise, I suppose, in this area to say as publicly as we can, no, hold on, this is not the truth.
5: Your message in the border is that it's not a Mexican drugs problem, it's an American one. Do you think that people are starting to wake up to that?
4: Yes, I do. And I do because look, you know, uh, when I write these books, they, they send me out on the road and I meet people, you know. And you can, I have, over the course of these 20-some-odd years, a third of my life, right, uh, seen the change at a grassroots level. Now, the change is not going to come from above. It, it just won't, you know. But when you see people on the street or when you, you know, a lot of mayors call me, police chiefs call me, the people who have to deal with this problem on a daily practical basis, they're starting to affect changes, and, and and I believe it or not, I'm optimistic about it.
5: Some novelists write just because they have to tell a story. It feels like you write for that reason, but also to make changes in the world. Is that right?
4: I don't think so. Uh, I'm not a crusader. Mm. I'm not a moralist. You know, uh, I, I write crime novels. I, tr- mm. I try to tell good stories. That's my first job, you know. But... Look, if in the course of doing that, if while I'm telling a good story with good characters, it's going to engage people, I can also maybe inform, maybe encourage people to look at something a little differently, then I'm happy to do that.
5: Um, Now, your first book, A Cool Breeze on the Underground, was written while you were working as a safari guide. Is that... Is that
4: right? That is absolutely the truth.
5: How did that? How did that come about? Why would you write? Uh,
4: <laughs> <laughs> you find that odd and amusing. Uh, yeah, um, well, it's an look,
5: unusual combination. I it would is, say.
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you, you, nobody stamps your passport to be a writer. You know what I mean? And if you, you go to college and you get a law degree, then someone stamps something and you're an attorney. And if you go to medical school, they do the same thing and you're a doctor. That doesn't exist for a writer, nor did I go to school to be a writer, but I've never had a writing class. So I I always wanted to do that, but the world did not agree for quite a while. So I had other gigs, you know, so I was an investigator. And because my degree is actually in African history, which made me a hardcore unemployable, one of the options, because I spoke the languages and I had a certain amount of the Bush skills, and I could get people in and out without getting too many of them killed, I, you know, I did that. So when I finally decided I'm going to take this seriously and and actually write a crime book, uh, I was in Kenya with uh, malaria and dysentery and uh, decided, you know, you could die, you know, and, and you better really do this. And I'd heard Joe Wamba, who's since become a friend, say on the radio that when he was a homicide investigator. Uh, he decided to write five, well, ten pages actually a day, no matter what. And I thought, I can't do that, but I can do five. And so uh, in a tent uh, in the Maasai Mara in Kenya, I started to write that book.
5: Excellent. You say in your acknowledgments uh, to the border that you've been writing this story, um, Keller's story, um, for a third of your life, yeah. over 20 years. Are you done with it? Yes,
4: are you sure? <laughs> did, you, did you notice the lack of hesitation in, in that answer? Yes, I am sure. I wasn't finished with it after Cartel, although it took me several years to realize that. Now I am. I think that, that Keller has done and especially said what he's needed to do and what he's needed to say. I talk about him like he's a real guy. He's not. He's fiction. But uh, other than my wife and child, I've spent more time with Art Keller than any other real human being in my life. You know, so yeah, I'm done.
0: Don Winslow's The Border is published by HarperCollins. After the break, we'll be discussing how
1: books have been used as weapons of protest. And- do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Ali Murray. absolutely incredible or anime and under this mask is another mask (laughs) you can discover your new favorites right here on the anime effect listen every friday wherever you get your podcast and watch full video episodes on crunchyroll or on the crunchyroll youtube channel hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
0: Welcome back to the Guardian Books Podcast. Novels have often been used as a tool of resistance against the status quo, a way of critiquing the powers that be without the inconvenience of getting your head chopped off. As the French novelist Victor Hugo wrote in the preface to his gargantuan 1862 novel Les Miserables,
2: that was a time when the guillotine still existed, so long as there shall exist, by reason of law and custom, a social condemnation which, in the face of civilization, artificially creates hells on earth and complicates a destiny that is divine with human fatality. So long as the three problems of the age, the degradation of man by poverty, the ruin of women by starvation, and the dwarfing of childhood by physical and spiritual night are not solved, so long as in certain regions social asphyxia shall be possible, in other words, and from a yet more extended point of view, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, books like this cannot be useless.
3: Well <laughs> <laughs> was very impressive. I was a bit, a bit
0: sad that we didn't hear your best French accent. Oh, come You went all Churchillian ch- on us, which was is actually entirely it would have just appropriate. <laughs>
3: offensive, wouldn't
0: it?
2: <laughs> it's <laughs> quite is, ringing, isn't it? It's
0: very ringing. But there is, of course, a fine line between fiction and polemic, as the reception of Les Miserables itself demonstrated. Poet and critic Baudelaire, for one, pra- uh, praised Hugo's success in focusing public attention on social problems, but said that propaganda was the opposite of art. And um, in behind his hand in private, he dismissed the novel as repulsive and inept. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And this brings us to some of the t- early 20th century polemical novels, doesn't it, yeah. Sean? I mean, George Orwell?
3: Yes, well, we, I, I did a, a recent event um, for uh, at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, and it was with Dorian Linsky. And we were basically both making the cases for particular novels being better than One another's, and uh, I was making the case for *The Sheltering Sky* by Paul Bowles, and he was making the case for uh, *1984*. And um, it was really interesting because he had to kind of clarify that actually, as like Orwell wasn't a novelist; he was a political writer that used novels to convey political thought. And so he said, when you sort of scrape away all the baggage of *1984* and all of the sort of terms it's given us, and all that sort of political heft to it and you look at it just as a novel it's actually not a great novel in terms of how it's written um, in terms of how it's structured even um, and I did have a whinge at him about um, there's there's two chapters that I find so dull um, which uh, primarily uh, <laughs> Winston reading a book and then Julia being asleep and I said I absolutely understand why Julia is asleep for two chapters <laughs> but it's uh, you know there are things like that that you can actually critique but it seems so big in the sort of public mind that people are like oh no you can't say anything bad about Orwell but actually as a novelist like was he actually a particularly good novelist and well, I think I think that Animal Farm is is
0: it's an amazing piece of writing isn't it and the pigs have characters we remember them all I remember I can, I've i never got over the first time I read about poor old Snowball being. Parted yeah. off to the knackers yard i've always identified with with
3: <laughs> but it's like do you ever i don't know whether anyone and whether anyone now really can have that reading experience of reading an animal farm without the awareness of the fact that it's it's all allegorical but that
0: that's not that's our problem if that's a problem for us I mean it, it created something which has it has become a phenomenon bigger than itself a bit like you could say Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale
3: yes well I mean Atwood's an interesting one in that she she wears her politics very much on her sleeve and she's very unashamed about saying that she's putting forward her view of the world's on things particularly stuff like the environment which she feels uh, very passionate about um but there is a certain amount of um Uh, world building and there is a richness in her books I think that you could read them and still perhaps ignore the politics on some level and read books like Oryx and Crake just as a a sci-fi literary novel Um, but you know you can also comb through it and find Atwood's stance on everything from pornography to climate change. You could read Animal Farm as a as a story about... Just animals. fishistic pigs. Well, <laughs> animals.
0: But you, what do you think about this?
2: Well, I think that, yeah, I think that just as Orwell was hoping that the reader would gain some sort of insight into politics from his book, I think Margaret Atwood is expecting that they might gain something very similar.
0: Both of them are satirical, aren't they? And that's what one interesting thing. In a way, it's not speculative fiction. It's more... A satire of what exists and and Margaret Atwood has always said nothing in my novels doesn't exist already in the world
3: and it's actually interesting that Oryx and Crake I think is uh, certainly for a lot of people their favourite book out of that Mad Adam trilogy and I would say by the time you get to Mad Adam which is the final book in the trilogy the politics are far more of it and the books are actually more boring for it I think. You know, if you go back through the history of particularly of European literature, well, of
0: Latin American literature as well, there are whole forms of satirical disguise that have grown up around the novel. It's totally legitimate engine of the novel, isn't it? Like, I mean, one of my favourite novels um, is Heart of a Dog, um, Bulgakov's Heart of a Dog. And Bulgakov is more famous for The Master and Margarita. But um, it was published in Samistat in 1925. It's so outraged. that It, it was read at a soiree. The tradition was to read them out at soirees, and there was a spy in the soiree. The result of the spy's presence was that it never actually got published properly until way after his death. But it's about... Uh, um, it's a mad scientist who does a sort of Frankenstein's act on a dog, trying to me- to try and make him into an ideal human. Of course, he has dog characteristics <laughs> when he's made into a human and just goes around sort of cocking his leg and... <laughs> Being inappropriate. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is that that novel, Bulgakov, actually he didn't get away with it. But but the the, the history of allegory and of, of satire, in, particularly in in Middle Europe, is about being able to say the unspeakable in fictional form, isn't it? So he also used, and more successfully, used science fiction, and that's another of the of the sort of fictions of disguise. So Doris Lessing wrote a really interesting preface to it, um, in which she pointed out that it came from a tradition of science fiction that was um, came from H.G. Wells and took in most early American science fiction, which was social criticism or despite disguised political comment. And she said it has been exasperating to read comments to the effect that science fiction is escapers, <laughs> because actually it's not. So
3: does your point about, um, about that, you know, George Orwell and polemics extend to science fiction. You just mentioned H.G. Wells, and I think H.G. Wells is amazing as a writer, and um, books like The Sleep Awakes and, you know, the books that were, you know, very much about uh, economic systems and, 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 and systems of politics. Um, I love all those. But I think there's a lot of... I think... In terms of like H.G. Wells as a, as a stylist and uh, what he built around his messages, I, I sort of felt like there was more than, the, than there is perhaps around Orwell. I mean, maybe there's something
0: about the whole um, tradition of science fiction, Richard, the construction of other worlds. Therefore, you have to construct another world in order to give your message.
2: Yeah, and, th- and that idea that uh, there's social criticism or disguised political commentary is still very popular today. I mean, we had Kim Stanley Robinson on this on this podcast a while back, arguing that his novel Aurora, which is a, about a 200-year voyage to colonise a planet around Tau Ceti, which ends in failure, uh, he's arguing that, that that novel returns us to our vision on Earth. Uh, if Earth is our only home, he said... If it's the only planet humanity can ever be healthy on, maybe we will engage more seriously in the project of taking care of it. That's what he's kind of driving at with the novel. Or we've got Nick Harkaway, whose Nomon was basically written against that idea of total surveillance. This kind of comes from his horror at that idea. And who says that his literary project is to engage with the ideas that are already freaking you out. Or again, Anne Leckie, also on this podcast, who is who was explaining that Ancillary Justice, her, her uh, multiple award-winning novel, wasn't just written as a challenge to attitudes around gender, diversity and reputation, but the conversations around those issues made their way into the book anyhow. And that's something that actually James S.A. Corey, a, a writing duo, who will be appearing on this podcast next month, they, they argue that similar forces are shaping their fiction as well.
0: So, so are you saying that actually that n- novelists shouldn't set out to prove a point, but they should harness the, the whirlwind I'm, I'm, I'm which very, is a view of which is something you can say about I'm about very loath to say what fiction. novelists
2: should or shouldn't do um, but the novels that I find the most successful um the most enjoyable to read are those which are kind of embedded in the world in the kind of way that means this stuff comes out anyway
0: so what about other genres I mean we've we've, we've obviously Don Winslow um, belongs to crime thriller mm. crime um, John le Carre, I mean he's a very political writer isn't he I, and, and I think that he is one of the writers who will survive from mm. the 20th century he's he, you know he's has because of that he i think he's been very underrated because there was a you know we just didn't really rate genre writers <laughs> actually he comes if you if you sort of go through all all the best of best of the 20th century he comes up pretty strongly and you know he's he took on big cut big farmer in the constant Gardener and c- Colonial, you know Big Farmer as an extension of colonialism and his latest Agent Running in the Field is set in ni- 2018 where the UK surprise surprise is ruled by a minority Tory cabinet of 10th raters.
3: <laughs> <laughs> is <laughs> there easy. a lot of opinions held by characters in this, in that book that you're like hmm okay John
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> do you think he's got, he's he's been too obvious do you think he's doing the Orwell thing of, mm. of, of I mean, he. Yeah, that is. A, that is a-
3: I would say that's not unfair criticism, and I think this is also the thing that it's like, it it, it also kind of depends on where you fall in terms of your political leanings about how hit up you're going to be about that sort of thing, and because I perhaps share some of his opinions about. 10th raters. Uh, I don't mind it so much because I think it's funny <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily mean that's a better book because of those uh, little snarky asides that he puts into the mouths of characters
2: But Do you think that engagement with the political around him is part of the secret of his success?
3: Well, He's so engaged I guess and th- that's kind of something that's so admirable about him that he's not sort of doing the same thing again and again. He's doing things like Big Pharma um, you know and that was quite far into his career. It wasn't he just didn't stick with the you know, Cold, Cold War, Spy War, yeah. novel. He moved on with the times, and he's clearly so well informed about the things he's writing about. He's he's you know it's it. it there is a sense that he's a curious man, and that he's interested in what's happening in the world. Um, and I think just perhaps now, because of who he is, and perhaps the stage in his career that he's at, he's also not afraid of calling it how he sees it. So I think our conclusion is that
0: we have a resistance to feeling manipulated by fiction, even though the whole of literature is a creative ruse to dis guy
3: is just that isn't it it really depends on uh, it's not necessarily how the author has written a book but how you uh, receive the book about whether you feel like you're being preached at or not and authors will always say oh i don't want to preach and you know i think don winslow said that himself in the interview with alison um that you don't want to see like seem like you're sort of sermonizing in a novel um but it is interesting i think about at what point do different people feel like they're being lectured um, and I do think that just actually falls along political lines, as opposed to anything the author is intending to do.
2: Well, you might just say that manipulation is persuasion that doesn't work.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. There we
0: we'll leave with, we'll leave with that thought. And <laughs> if anybody would like to join this conversation, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or via the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, but that's all for this week. Next week we chat to Catherine Jamie about climate change, the North, and death. Plus, we'll be hearing a voice from the archives, but for now, from me, Claire Armistead,
2: me Richard Lee, and me Sean
0: Kane, and our producer Esther Poku Jenny. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. For more great podcasts from the Guardian, just go to theguardian.com/podcasts.